Hey, Crime and Coffee listeners. Since you're a fan of this podcast, that means you enjoy learning dark and disturbing facts, and you appreciate witty banter. And that's why we think you'll love our show. It's called Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, and it's a history and pop culture podcast featuring weekly deep dives into a diverse variety of topics, and also featuring us, comedians and lifelong friends Shane Rogers and Duncan McEwen. Whether you're nocturnal, sleep-deprived, or just a fan of laughing and learning, we'll keep you entertained with more than 120 episodes covering everything from killers to cults, UFOs to conspiracy theories, true crime to the history of personality tests. Just search for Midnight Facts in any podcast player to join the Midnight Masses. everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name is Mike. Hi, Mike. Hey, I still have the uh, little scratchy throat thing from last week because we're recording episodes right after each other. So mm-hmm. hopefully when somebody's listening to this, my voice is way better. Yeah. By this point. I'm so. sure it will be. We'll see. We'll like, nurse you back to good health. Yeah. In the next episode, we're all going to find out together. So we will. Looking forward to that. I mean, maybe the saddest part of this whole thing uh, was earlier this morning when I tried to sing a Boy George song, uh, <laughs> Karma Chameleon. No, I don't even think you could sing it. Well, let's see. Um, come, 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 chameleon. You're doing okay. You come and go. Don't hurt yourself, okay? Yeah. Don't hurt yourself. Allison's or like, us, please. Allison's like, yeah, save it for the uh, podcast. You gotta no, save the voice. I most certainly did not say. Oh, your voice. The voice. I, I was like, I didn't tell you to save the song for the podcast. Oh no, I can sing whenever. I don't have to s- share my songbirdness. No, Mike, you can sing whenever. That is true. Yeah, I mean, I don't Do people want you to be singing. I don't know. Probably not. I don't care. You have a nice voice. Oh, thank you. Well, normally not today, but well, today it's gonna, a little hoarse, a little is. strained. Yeah. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Yeah, so what's uh, what's new with you? You know, just trying to do my best. Um, so not much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just uh, I'm just trying. Right. That's all you can do. Um, I want to say, hey, if you've uh, listened to us uh, over three times and you enjoy what you hear, it's time to put out, as Allison would say. That's how she actually got me uh, when we were first dating. She's like, listen, we've dated uh, three times and it's time for you to put out, big guy. <laughs> I most certainly did not say those words. <laughs> no, you were actually a tough nut to crack, if we remember correctly. Yes, I was. Uh, we were very young, too. 15? We were 16 when we met. But yeah, yeah. So Yeah. It, learning all sorts of new stuff um but yeah so it's uh i wanted to say thanks for leaving any reviews if you've listened to us three times it'd be awesome uh to leave a review on amazon or apple podcasts or amazon um audible any how of about wherever you listen to your podcasts well because, and you can leave a review right but there's only like three places you can actually leave like a, a, a text review so that's why i mentioned them allison and you have your big shit-eating grin looking at me like huh, what an idiot <laughs> listen to him talk about these things you jerk so anyways thank you to um anna Love you guys. Hello, my name's Anna. I've been binge listening to you guys for a couple weeks now and just love listening to you. Your small talk in the beginning cracks me up and makes my day. I love the interaction between you two. Hashtag couple goals. Oh, keep on doing what you guys do and God bless. Oh, how nice. Yeah, we are. You want to be dysfunctional like us? (laughs) (laughs) Allison's just looking. I can't wait to just jump on something that I'm doing. Oh, you know what's funny, though? You're like, hey, so what's new with you? So anyway, and you just completely cut me off. Well, you know why? Because I saw the deer in the headlights look. You were like, I I don't have anything to say. So I have to to carry the show. Clearly is what we're trying to do. Well, you know, and then I went to the reviews so you can think of something to say. Now let's hear what's new with you. Just organizing the house. 
Oh, good. That's I mentioned in our last podcast that our daughter was sick because, again, like Mike said, we're just recording these boom, boom. Um, So while she was basically like falling asleep and whatever on her bed, I just like scoured her room. I mean, how does that much junk end up in an 11 year old girl's room? I don't know. Like how? I don't know. I had like three bags to Goodwill or Salvation Army or whatever, and then tons of garbage. I'm like, what is all this crap? Yeah, she's kind of a background. Like, not garbage is in like garbage, garbage, <laughs> like cl- like toys that she doesn't play with that are just run down, like old uh, Happy Meal toys from years ago. Yeah, that don't like, touch. Yeah, no. What is uh the Spark Joy um, Marie Kondo? Yeah, yeah if it doesn't none spark of that joy. crap Spark Joy for either of us. So. Get rid of it. Yeah, but it's just amazing. Like every year I clean out the rooms, yet the, somehow they end up being a complete crap den. Well, I mean, we live life. That's how it is. It can't be perfect all the time. Such is life. Yeah. Um, I would like to say I made myself a delicious French press this morning, and coffee, and it was so good. And uh, I wanted to, you know, ground some fresh beans, but unfortunately we didn't have any. So I just went with some Dunkin' Donuts hazelnut, and uh, I'm enjoying that right now. I Actually, thought you were going to say you had a delicious sardine sandwich. Oh, my God. He's, gotta, like, obsessed with sardines lately. Thank you so much for mentioning that. <laughs> I just got some awesome sardines. They're so good. <laughs> I have not seen Mike this happy in probably about eight months. I kind of forgot that sardines existed because you view them as like old person food, you know, with some crackers. And that's like, okay, let's open up the can. Here we go. Well, that's what you're doing. I know. And now I'm one of those people. So I got, <laughs> I saw an awesome deal on Amazon for these like super like uh, net caught sardines or something like that. They're, they're caught sustainably. Basically. Oh, they were caught in a net? Well, sustainably. So as opposed to what? Oh my God. So <laughs> I don't know. Like line, maybe a line instead of a net. I don't know. Something sustainable. <laughs> a line for sardines i don't well yeah they're pretty small can you imagine them reeling up i got a big one hank (laughs) it's at least three inches yeah so i don't know there's probably different ways but it's supposed to be sustainable and they're delicious and they're like you know a lot of olive oil and salt and i put it uh, a friend of mine at work she said put it on a sandwich and i squirted some mustard on there It was so freaking good yeah and i don't want to yuck your yum because that's rude oh like you have been for about three minutes now well, you sent me a text, a picture of it on Thursday when I was at work, and I was like, oh, God, you enjoy. I'm like, yeah, or you said you added cucumbers for crunch, and I'm like, no, I'm sure their little bones are giving it enough crunch. You don't And even... you're like, no, their bones are buttery. Yeah, you don't even feel like, them. Oh. It's so good, man. Mike, I'm glad that you're enjoying it, and we also realize that they're low mercury, so, you know, hey. you can enjoy it and not be poisoned with mercury. High in omega fatty acids. It's like 20 grams of protein per serving. It's Fantastic. delicious. Yeah. So delicious. that's what's going on in this neck of the woods. Yeah. Other than that, hey, just listening to you tell uh, these stories of uh, all, all sorts of things mm-hmm. going on. So what so do you got this week? This week, um, are we ready to jump right in? Yep. So this is a story of Carlton Gary, who is known as the Stocking Strangler. And this has been in my wheelhouse for quite a bit. Um, One of our listeners named Matthew, he gave this suggestion. So thank you so much, Matthew. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Um, So during an eight-month period of time from September of 1977 to April of 1978, residents of Columbus, Georgia, lived in fear as seven women were raped and strangled, often with their own stockings, hence the name The Stocking Strangler. That sucks. I mean, anything like this sucks, but it's just like, you know, this is the same dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, hence the serial killer. But I I haven't. And they're you mean how like scary that'd be just living there? Terrible. And they're elderly women for the most part. 
So these women were mothers. They were grandmothers, fellow church members, neighbors, and dear friends. They were all elderly white females who lived alone. So the first one happened on Monday, September 12th, 1977, in the Winton neighborhood of Columbus, Georgia. An elderly woman named Gertrude Miller was raped, beaten, and strangled in her home. She survived the attack. Oh, Thank wow. goodness. So four days later, it was 10 a.m. on September 16th, police received a phone call that 59-year-old Mary, or Fern as she went by, Jackson, hadn't shown up for work that day. Fern was described as a reliable employee and someone who was dedicated to helping the poor and racial minorities of Georgia. Jesse Thornton was the first police officer to respond to the scene, and he first noticed no sign of forced entry at Fern's home. As he entered the hallway, which was the first space that he came upon, he noticed that something didn't seem right. There were papers and various items strewn across the floor, and it looked like an otherwise tidy home, so they were out of place. He noticed an open suitcase and a pillow on the floor and a dresser that had the drawers open with the items spilling out. As he approached Fern's bedroom, he looked inside and found her body on the bed. Dr. Joe Weber conducted the autopsy and found that a nylon, nylon stocking was tied together with a dressing gown, making one single ligature, and it had been wrapped around Fern's neck three times. There were very deep crevices formed as the ligature had been tied very tightly. Her left eye had been filled with blood, likely from a heavy blow to her head. Fern's right eye contained tiny hemorrhages were indicative of strangulation which obviously we know that she was they found her with the ligature in place can you imagine like being this much of a scumbag to do this to like a poor old lady living at home in her own business by herself yeah you come in and violate this person in the worst possible way and and kill her in her in the safety of her own home and this guy probably also learned from his first attempt when the woman didn't die so right. he's probably like okay this next one i'm gonna make sure which is disgusting like you're learning from your past quote-unquote mistakes right which is sick so they found that her sternum was fractured, which requires an enormous force to do so. And traces of semen were found on the bed sheets, and trauma was discovered to Fern's vagina, vagina indicating that she had been raped. And it's, it's always sexually based, man. Oh, so always, sad. always, always. It's crazy. So police were unable to pinpoint why, why, what motive did this person have? Because their house was in disarray, but they found that there were plenty of valuables that hadn't been touched. So clearly not going after mm -hmm. anything else besides trying to kill this person. Yeah, her valuables and her jewelry were all left untouched. Police investigating Fern's murder would quickly come to find that a serial killer is now on the loose mm. in Columbus, Georgia. Eight days later, on September 24th, 71-year-old Jean Dimenstein, who was the owner of a small department store, was murdered in her home, similarly to Fern. Neighbors say that she voiced her fears about the news reports because now she's before she was attacked, there were two women. One survived, one was murdered, and she's like, geez, this is really scary. Well, lo and behold, this poor woman became a victim. So this killer gained access by removing the hinges of the door leading from her garage into her kitchen. Mm -hmm. Oh, that just like gives me chills down my spine. On October 2nd, a man named Jerome Livas was arrested for raping and beating his 55-year-old girlfriend to death. On October 14th, police announced, we have our, our suspect from the stocking stranglings. Why do they think that? Because Jerome confessed. 
to oh. killing both Fern and Jean. I, I don't know how many more times. I mean, we're going to say it time and time again, but what's wrong with these people that just like get off on saying that they did something they didn't? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So, of course, the elderly women of the Columbus area are breathing a sigh of relief like, oh, they got their guy. Yeah. And the other thing, it's almost like they're in a fraternity. Like, do you wonder, like, are they trying to protect each other a little bit? Like, we're all psychopaths. That, no, no, I don't think so. It's just about the, the own personal the notoriety attention. and attention. Yeah. So, you know, not only are the women in this age range breathing a sigh of relief, but police are calling off their stakeouts yeah, and I, their I, extra patrols. I picture them like dusting their hands like, OK, well, got on to the next one. Sweet. I mean, I, I don't blame him they said he did it okay yeah. got it and everything would change then on october 21st while jerome was incarcerated 89 year old mm. 89 year old florence scheibel who was almost blind and had to get around with the use of her walker was both raped and murdered in her home how do you like identify some you know elderly woman like this it's are sick. you gonna are you gonna eventually say that was it i mean you I, no I guess we'll find i'm not out. going to but okay despite her lack of vision and advanced age she was often seen tending to the yard of her small apartment so she was active despite you know the fact that she could barely see she was an avid baseball fan and because she had very poor vision she would listen to like all the baseball games on the radio which i just thought was so adorable Cute. and yeah. sweet. Like Atlanta Braves, I would guess. I would assume so. And she knew all the players. She knew their batting averages. Poor woman had been brutally beaten. Her neck had been broken and she was strangled. Her son found her body when he came by for a visit later that day. So Florence was murdered in, in the middle of the day. It was it was light outside. Now, it sounds like these things are absolutely horrific. Like not just, you know, strang- rapes and strangulation. Mm-hmm. Like there's broken bones and beatings going yeah, on. Yeah, vicious. Here. Vicious. <sighs> And Florence was only 10 days away from turning 90 years old. Mm -hmm. Just breaks my heart. It was obvious now that Jerome Livas had falsely confessed and the citizens of Columbus were back in a state of terror. Of course. So four days later, now we're moving on to October 25th, 69-year-old retired teacher, excuse me, easy for me to say, retired teacher Martha Thurmond was murdered. When she hadn't shown up as expected to her mother-in-law's house, her niece came to check on her. And when she didn't answer the door, she called the police who found that Martha had been strangled to death. On December 28th, 74-year-old Kathleen Woodruff, widow of former University of Georgia football coach George C. Woodruff, was found murdered with a varsity football scarf. Each victim lived only a few blocks from each other. Okay, so it's every single victim thus far, Mm -hmm. a few blocks. Okay, so you've got your area. Yeah, so now we have five women murdered and one survivor, and the city was in a state of terror. Sales of locks and firearms were significantly increased because... These women are very vulnerable. They're they're tending to be older. They live alone. You know, what are you going to do? Nothing. You have no, like if somebody busts in and you're an elderly woman, you have nothing. So that's why, yeah, get a gun, get a knife, I mean, even a knife. Like you're, when you're sleeping, you know, you're sleeping in a, in a deep, deep sleep in a dark bedroom and somebody is just there. You're defenseless. How did he get into most of them? I know you said he removed the hinges to the one. They didn't say otherwise, like if he lifted a window or something yeah. like that. Okay. And the other thing, the one was four days after, like this guy, oh, is quick. Just, he wanted it so bad. Like it was almost like he just got horny and he's like, okay, well, time to go kill another one. Mm-hmm. Like it's disgusting. Right. 
So the police formed a stocking stranglers task force, which was also which this had been assigned by the governor, and it included dozens of agents from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, as well as extra patrols by state troopers, as well as soldiers from Fort Benning. Despite this, the terror and the murders just continued. So now we're moving on to 1978. We're at February 12th, and this is 74-year-old Ruth Schwab. This guy's not like slowing down. No. This is just like... So I imagine they're all like dispersed in this five-block radius, right? Very close. Just like there's got to be crawling with cops. You would assume so, yes. How does this... I mean, you know, anybody's walking down the street, so it's like, well, I mean, odds are it could be anybody. So in this one, he took a pause between December 28th and then February 12th. Yeah. So he did wait, you know, close to a couple of months. So I don't know if police were, I would imagine they were still staking out the area, just waiting for the next call to come in. But regardless, he, he was able to do it. So I don't know. Maybe he was just slinking through the streets at night in I dark mean, clothing. You don't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. You know? They like, have no idea. Yeah, you're looking for a human that looks suspicious. Right. So Ruth is, again, 74 years old. She's the widow of a textile tycoon. She was attacked, though, just like the other, she survived. Oh, wow. She was trained in judo and fought her attacker. Like, what a friggin' badass. Not to say that the other people weren't. But I'm well, just saying, like, like you know, play, at 74 yeah. years old, she, like, tapped into her martial arts skills. Well, judo is all about using their force against them. So, like, hip tossing and stuff like okay. that and throwing people around. So, I don't know. Like, there's not a lot of striking in judo. It's more about grappling. So okay. I, I don't even know. I'm sure a, a portion of that probably helped when he was lunging at her and stuff. Well, in addition to that, she also had a panic alarm button in her home, which I believe she had installed because of the fear of what oh, was going on in the area. Brilliant. So, which is nice when you have, when you're formerly married to a tycoon, mm-hmm. you can afford these kind of things. Sure. So when police arrived, they literally thought he was still inside. They heard like movement and things happening. So I believe that on that case, he, the police missed him by mere seconds. Wow. So they got in and then right between his, their fingers, basically he got away. So then he fled from Ruth's house and made his way directly to 78 year old Mildred Barome's house. Now, this is disgusting, but also kind of smart on his he part. He knows, the police. They're all going to be there. They're going to mm-hmm. be there. You know how it is. But anytime there's something big that happens, right, a million distracted. police come, and there's tons of cars, and they're focused on that area. Yeah. So he can literally go anywhere now and do the same thing. You're exactly right, because everybody is um, hands on deck. They're distracted. So he left that house and went straight to Mildred's, which was only two blocks away. He strangled her from to death with a cord from her blinds it was obvious that mildred tried fighting back based on the chaos of the room there was like broken lamps and things like that no doubt a neighbor had described seeing a black man run through his yard columbus coroner donald kilgore had examined the crime scenes and the bodies and announced that the killer was indeed a black man based Ah. on evidence um left behind did not picture that because yeah as we all know most serial killers are white men it's true So, meanwhile, in February of 1978, Columbus police received a threatening letter from a white racist group called the Forces of Evil. 
They threatened that if police did not catch the strangler by June 1st, they would murder a black woman in retaliation. They specifically named a woman named Gail Jackson. What the hell? This person sat or a group of people. I mean, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm not laughing because it's funny. No, it's, it's, that's not the funny. ridiculousness. Of the it ridiculousness. Yeah. So this uh, group of people or person said that Gail had already been kidnapped and was being held. But if they didn't catch the stocking strangler by June 1st, they were going to kill her. That's what they were being told. So when police investigated, they realized that Gail was missing. Jesus Christ. So a second letter arrived demanding $10,000 ransom. After investigating the letters, it's amazing to me what the FBI can whittle down fact-wise. So... So they investigated the letters. The behavioral science unit of the FBI realized that these letters were not from seven racist men, though likely one black man. This is all just theorized. They don't know this. <laughs> That's insane. It's, Do it's, they say, I, I imagine they don't share why they knew that. Oh, yeah. They pulled out certain pieces of his letters uh, and, and deduced it down to this. Oh, probably from language use and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. So um, they also believed that this person had already killed Gail, that she was not being held, but that she had already been murdered. They also um, projected that he was an artillery man or a military policeman and may have killed two other women based on the words of his writings. Oh, my God. Okay, so like accidentally using past tense or something. and numbers and things like that. Yeah, oh, my God, that's insane. They were suspecting that the letters were a ruse to divert attention from the real killer, and eventually they found William Hans, who was an artillery man from Fort Benning. He was arrested for the murder of Gail Jackson. He confessed to writing the letters and to have killed two additional women just like they suspected insane and there was no link between him and the stocking strangler so it was completely you know unrelated but again a distraction because it was something that was going on during the investigation i mean at this point georgia has to be up in arms Mm -hmm. the entire state like what the hell is happening here what's in the water yeah that's making people go nuts it's crazy so now we're moving on to april 20th 1978 were in eight months after the stranglings began. So this is 61-year-old first-grade teacher, Janet Kofer. She was strangled to death. Janet would normally have had her dachshund named Buffy sleeping with her under her bed, though tragically, only weeks earlier, Buffy had been struck by a car and died. Uh-huh. And that could have been just the thing to prevent her attack because you know how people want things to be quiet. When they're slipping into somebody's house, they don't want to have a, a dog barking. Like we have a little dog that she's a great watchdog i mean she'll anytime anybody's moving anywhere she's looking right she's gonna start barking very loudly and yippy but yeah uh, i mean she weighs about six pounds but it's the it's the attention that she's attracting so that i can wake up and be aware you know yeah Yeah. so it's just sad to think that you know just a few weeks earlier she had a dog with her dachshunds are fantastic watchdogs Mm -hmm. we had to babysit a dachshund for a friend and he's a little vicious spitfire Spitfire. (laughs) just vicious that little oliver (laughs) so this was the last murder that the strangler committed so we're coming to the end of his rampage okay i was gonna ask i didn't want to be like you know what number is this Uh, because it's kind of non-human yeah it is it's really sad so just around this time, a Columbus woman named Theta, 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 Theta Cartwright reported her gun missing, but police really had no reason to link it with the stranglings. Yes, she was in the area. Her boyfriend was a man named Carlton Gary, though he 
or she made no mention that she thought that her boyfriend had anything to do with the gun being taken. Okay. So as the months and years passed, police were no closer. Yes. They were no closer to finding their killer. Six years after Janet's murder, no one had been charged. And no more murders. Nope. Okay. No more. I wonder what stopped it. I don't know. So I got a lot of my information from a Vanity Fair article, and it was written by a journalist named David Rose. Probably somebody that wrote a book on it as well, if I had to guess. I, I think so. So in 1996, he researched Georgia's handling of death penalty cases and found that Columbus had sent more prisoners to death row than anywhere else in Georgia, despite their relatively low crime rates. That's interesting. There was... um. Also, a long history of black men being killed for alleged crimes against white people. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when racists in Georgia defended lynching as necessary and justified, especially in cases where black men were allegedly to have had sex with a white woman. In an 1897 Atlanta Journal column, Rebecca Latimer Felton wrote, If it takes lynching to protect women's dearest possession from drunken, ravening human beasts, then I see say lynch a thousand a week if it becomes necessary Hmm. so in june of 1912 12 year old cleo land and the reason why i'm telling you this story is because the family is becomes involved in this case i figured so 12 year old cleo land was killed by a gunshot wound to the eye by his friend who was 14 year old tz mcelany he was an african-american boy and tz said I was playing with the gun. It accidentally went off and killed my friend. An all-white jury found him guilty of manslaughter, and Cleo Land's father, Will, was not satisfied with this. And he and Cleo's uncles, Brewster and Ed, took TZ from the courthouse and shot him between 25 and 50 times in front of a crowd of people. That's Isn't this madness? A 14-year-old boy they dragged from the courthouse. What year was this? This was in 1912. Of course it is, because 1912, crazy shit like this happens all the time. And it's like, oh, okay. Because, and you know, racial relations have come a long way since then. Thank but, God. I mean, still really far from being good. But uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, I always think of Atlanta as a very diverse place. You know, um, a lot of black people, a lot of white people, kind of like half and half, you know, a good, good collection. Very similar to Chicago where, you know, you kind of have like, it's, a, you get a lot of culture, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's cool. So I, I view them as similar since we're from Chicago and it's, it's disgusting when things happened, you know, back it's, in the day. It's hard to even believe that this stuff actually happened and not super long ago no like 100 years ago that's not like super super long you, you would think 2000 years ago yeah maybe but no 100 years ago so of course um cleo's dad will and um brewster and ed the, they're like brothers three brothers this is going to be the first trial that's held in columbus where a white person stood trial for killing an african-american the of course all white jury found the land brothers not guilty the decision was reached unanimously and without discussion. Brewster, well, you know, you know that the defense probably doesn't was probably a racist person and doesn't ask for some diversity within the you know the, right. the jury, which is madness <laughs> right. to think that we think that now because we get it when we understand. But right. back in the day, it's like nope, it's going to be all white people. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. So the whole point of that story was that Brewster Land's son John would become the first judge to initially 
handle the stocking strangler murder case. Oh, interesting. That's why I told that story. And just okay. to kind of give you an idea of like, you know, what racial what, relations. Exactly. So by May of 1984, John Land had been a judge for 20 years and was regarded as one of the most powerful men in Georgia. In the late 1940s and early 50s, he served in the state as an active segregationist. Mm. So that's that's really nice. <laughs> so the case, again, the stocking strangler case had gone cold for six years until a suspect was identified and captured. In March of 1984, a police officer was murdered during an armed robbery. And this led to the identification of a type of pistol similar to one that was stolen in a burglary that happened at the time of the stocking strangler murders only houses away from one of the victim's homes. Police traced the gun from Michigan to Indiana to Alabama and back to Columbus, Georgia, and a man there said that he purchased the gun from his nephew, Carlton Gary, Mm. during the time of the Strangler's murders. Police ended up tracking down Gary at a Holiday Inn in Albany, Georgia, and once in custody, Carlton Gary apparently confessed to being present at most of the crime scenes. He claimed he was just there for the robbery, and an accomplice named Melvin Crittenden did the killings. Is this just a completely made-up name, or is this actually somebody no, in his life? No, he, belie- he, he uh, exists. So okay. the victim's belongings, again, they hadn't been taken, so you know gary is saying you didn't do a very good job uh, stealing anything yeah it's like well what did you take so we know that that wasn't the motive motivation of the attacks and when police tracked down malvin no evidence connected him to the murders and during the night of gary's arrest he was interrogated by detectives for eight hours though during this time there were said to be no notes or recordings made Carlton Gary had lived in Columbus, Georgia, until he was about 13. He had no relationship with his father. He only lived with his mother, and this was only through part of his childhood. He bounced around a lot. Any beatings or anything? uh, anything No, not that that I know of. He did live with various family members, so he did come from a very unstable background. Like You got to think somebody this sick is going to have some kind of a weird sexual thing, probably some kind of sexual abuse in their history. Not that I read, no. Yeah. So he had been in trouble with the law since his teens, though things escalated when he was tied to the rape and strangulation of an 84-year-old named Nellie Farmer in 1970, which was about seven years before the stocking stranglings began. Mm. Nellie was staying alone in a long-stay hotel in Albany, New York, and Gary had told Albany police that, just like this time around, he was only the lookout man for a habitual criminal named John Lee Mitchell. Gary testified against Mitchell, though Mitchell was found not guilty. After pleading guilty to robbery charges, Gary was sentenced to 10 years, but he was released after about five years. So he would have been released right around like 1975-ish. So on June 7th, 1975, 40-year-old teacher Marion Fisher was found dead on the road outside of Syracuse, New York. A 40-year-old. 40. So So that's a big age range. You know, we're talking from like 89, 84. And quick question. um, So we know Carlton was a black guy. Were all the women he killed white? Or uh, every woman them? that we're talking about right now is white. Okay. So, um, what about all the serial killings and all that? Everyone you've mentioned yes, so far, everybody white. was white. Got it. So now again, this is 40 year old Marion Fisher. I guess she and her husband got into a fight. She left the house and next thing you know, she's found dead being raped and murdered. Her body tossed like a piece of trash on the roadside of Syracuse, New York. 
So around 2004, investigators reopened this case and discovered that the evidence was still suitable for DNA testing because, of course, when it happened, we didn't have this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. An article from 2007 indicated that the DNA was officially tied to Carlton Gary at that point. So at least you know that officially this is 100% his. Yes, because initially, of course, they're suspecting the husband. Oh, you got into a fight with your wife and now she's dead. But they said that there was no the, the husband was released. So on January 3rd, 1977, a 55-year-old woman named Jean Frost woke up to a man in her bedroom doorway. He viciously attacked her, though she did survive. The next day, Carlton Gary was arrested at, at a Syracuse bank and was found with a gold watch that did belong to Jean. He admitted, again, that he went to her apartment complex, so he's putting himself there but saying, like, no, I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, he stood as a lookout person for a friend. We're hmm. very consistent in the story. Jean was not able to identify Gary as her attacker because he it happens a lot in the middle of the night it's pitch dark in the room you're sleeping and all of a sudden there's a person attacking you not only is the lighting terrible but you're you're can't even get your bearings about you sure and he's a black guy so it's harder to see you know Uh, features and such right exactly like you know something shining it's 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 tough and you know there's also another thing like it's it's hard to identify white people that only hang out with white people have make it are hard to identify other races. So I, I read about that because, you know, you, you're used to like races that you hang out with. You're used to identifying them. But like sometimes other races, like whether it's black people or Asian people. You mean like facial features? Yeah. Well, yeah. Really? It's an interesting thing to look into. Because that's like so factual. Right. Like, you it know? Is. Yeah. And hmm. it's, it's it's been found in science that's that it's really... harder to identify. Like you can't tell the difference between a couple people. It's harder to identify the difference within one race than it is to be with the one that you hang out with. Interesting. Mostly. Yeah. Um, so despite the fact that Gary was found with Jean's watch and he did say again that he was like the lookout person, he was at her apartment complex, there was no evidence that linked him to the actual attack. So no one was ever charged for that. Mm. So less than a month before the start of the stocking stranglings, Gary escaped from jail in August of 1977 in upstate New York, where he had been in prison for burglary. He was also a musician. He played, and I guess he was pretty good. He played the bass, the keyboards, and he played in clubs across the Northeast. During the time of the stranglings, he was also a model. He was modeling clothes for the Movin' Man, which was a fashion store in downtown Columbus. Wow. He was a big-time ladies' man. I guess he easily attracted women. Um, he appeared in local TV ads up to five times a night. Really? Yes. Jeez, this guy had a lot of things going on. Previous girlfriends described him as attentive. They said he was an absolutely normal lover. There was, like, no kinds of, like, stranglings happening. He wasn't yeah. getting off on, like... I don't want to say weird things. I hate that word, but not typical things like hey, vanilla things. You said it. Yeah, not me. So I think anything's cool as long as it's consensual. Yeah, and I, I'm i that way as well. But I guess you could say very. he was a very traditional, Lover. not into, um, you know, stranglings and things like that, which mm-hmm. you would think this person is getting off on the fact that this is happening. Yeah, at least a little bit. You'd think it'd be introduced to other places. So Gary was living in the Columbus area for about a year after the last murder in 1978. 
Columbus nightclub owner Floyd Washington described Gary as a very neat, sharp dresser. He said he was a good dancer. He had no problem with the ladies. He oftentimes left the club with a beautiful woman. He felt that it just didn't add up that he'd be leaving the club with this gorgeous woman his age and would leave her and go and, and murder and rape an elderly person. It doesn't like, make any sense it whatsoever. It just doesn't make sense. Like the picture in your mind is some loser that can't get anything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he chooses to go take advantage of somebody much older and, you know, more vulnerable, vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So less than a week after Gary was arrested in relation to the stocking stranglings, he chose his own lawyer, um, August F. Bud Simon III. So this was an Atlanta defense specialist who had dodged the death penalty during a dozen capital trials. He was assigned a different lawyer, but he said, no, I want to go with this person. Because Georgia law said that the courts must give men on trial for their lives a lawyer, Simon would be working for free if he chose to defend Gary as the court appointed a different lawyer, like I said. So he did. He worked for Gary for free. Wow. Yeah, he basically went into like bankruptcy doing it. So Carl and Gary must have like fed him a line of bullshit saying, oh, I didn't do any of this, man. You got to help me out. Is I don't know. It, you know. One guy to another. I don't know why he was compelled to do it for free. So now at this point, Judge John Land had to remove himself from the case because he was the judge initially because it emerged that he would be called in as a witness to Gary's treatment by police. So because he was being involved in the case, he couldn't represent it as the judge. Makes sense. So Judge Kenneth Followell took over and declared that the state would be given zero funds for experts to challenge its scientific testimony. So... The lawyer is not only not getting paid, he has no funding whatsoever to get a- experts in for um, hmm. the Well, I mean, that's that's evidence. Gary's fault. Carl and Gary, he's he's doing this to himself. I mean, they say yeah. that you because the, the, the court appoints you one if you can't afford an attorney that, you know, you always hear that in the Miranda rights. So he's like, well, no, I'm getting my own attorney. Once you get your own, then it's out of the books. Mm-hmm. Like they can't pay the, the state would have paid for it. had you taken the one they gave you. So it was so bad that they couldn't even they didn't even have the money to make long distance phone calls. Jeez. So Simon covered the case's expenses, which led him to near bankruptcy. Like I said, when Judge Land was interviewed in 2001, after he had long retired, he felt Judge Followell was wrong to deny Gary money for experts in order to have a fair trial. That's the rules, man. So Gary's trial began in August of 1986, which was nine years after the last murder had been committed. Police witnesses testified that Gary's fingerprints had been found at four of the crime scenes. Gertrude Miller, who survived the attack, she was the first person that was attacked, identified Gary in court as the man who had raped her. Jean Frost, who was, um, remember, he had her watch in the Syracuse um, area. She testified and described how she had been attacked, though lived to tell her story. Gary's pubic hairs were compared to those that were found at the crime scene. They did not match. Whoa, really? No, this is a very head scratching case oh i think i remember this one coming through i yeah i i forget everything like if just so if anybody has any ideas for for cases send them through instagram usually because that's mm-hmm. where we, we check things but i remember like hearing about this one through our listener and being like huh uh, so this is the one yes okay. and you and i normally do not discuss our cases whatsoever because we want them to be a surprise and i didn't really but the other night i closed my laptop and i just looked at you and i'm like i am befuddled i am truly befuddled 
So there were also biochemical differences between his bodily fluids and those left by the killer. Insane. So the jury consisted of nine white members and three African-Americans, and they began to deliberate at 5 p.m. on August 26, 1986, and less than an hour later, they found him guilty on all counts. After a short sentencing hearing the next day, Gary was sentenced to death. He was convicted of killing 89-year-old Florence Scheibel, 70-year-old Martha Thurmond, and 74-year-old Kathleen Woodruff. He was not convicted of the murders of Fern Jackson, Jean Dimenstein, Martha Thurmond, and... Oh, no, I, I named Martha, so I'm sorry. He was convicted of her murder. He was not convicted of Kathleen Woodruff or Janet Coffer, as well as any of the murders that occurred to New, in New York that he may have been tied to in the early 70s. They focused on the previous three murders because... Apparently, his fingerprints were found in the homes, and Gary admitted to being inside those homes. So they, like, it's one of those, like, get them where you think you can. Right, right. Just, yeah, well, you take the evidence you have. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So his fingerprints were also found at Nellie Farmer's home in Albany, New York, and he also admitted to being at that location. So in the fall of 1991, Gary is seeking out a new trial, and the case was assigned to Judge Daniel Kersey, who is a preacher in the United Methodist Church. And he was assigned to Jeff Ertl to represent Gary, to represent him as a lawyer. So Ertl said that he really liked Gary immediately. As he got to know him, he, he liked him a lot. During the initial trial, survivor survivor Gertrude Miller was considered a state witness. I'm sorry, not a state witness, a star witness. And former DA Bill Smith had emphasized during the closing statements to the jury that there was no way that Gertrude could have gotten her identification wrong and that despite being shown thousands of photos, she never accused anyone until she recognized Gary. So it was like a locked and loaded. This is what happened. However... This was later proven untrue, as she, and she had positively identified three other black men as the attacker. It's funny that, that, that well, I mean, not funny, but unfortunate, but interesting that I brought up that it's hard for people that hang out with white people to identify and, any other race. So, and that's, that's where I was like, wow, she nailed him right away. Like, nope. I, I wouldn't have that kind of confirmation, like, you know. That's it's there's so many things here. So this dude is like pretty well put together. He gets any girl he wants. He's a good like an artist, you know, so at least he has like some kind of a hobbies. hobby. Yeah, something to like get his mind right. It just doesn't fit the profile of some psychotic guy who's going out and like, but it also it doesn't make sense for him to be at these places every single time. Right. I mean, we people. know he was definitely doing shady things. Yeah. So that that, that doesn't fit either. So I guess if, if he's there. He's also, I mean, he deserves some kind of a a punishment, but I'm sorry to, I'm just trying to get what's in my mind out. Like there's so many things going on in my head. So again, she had identified three other black men as the attacker. And during her initial statement, Gertrude had told them, the police, that it was too dark to even identify the race of her attacker. Right. So you can't see what race they are, but you know who it was. Get the hell out of here. So the police sketches that she assisted with, which are bizarre to me that she could make sketches if she couldn't even identify the race. Right. You almost picture the police like, okay, well, maybe this. And then she's like, "Uh, yeah, Yeah. maybe. Uh, What, maybe this? Yeah, okay. Oh, all of a sudden it looks like Carlton Gary. Right. But the sketches were said to have no resemblance (laughs) to Gary. Okay. So it was indicated that the best fingerprint match from Gary came from a window screen from the home of Kathleen Woodruff, though officers at the crime scene recorded that there were, in quotes, no legible latents developed, which means no print marks were made visible when treated with chemical powder. 
Interesting. So they're saying there was, but they're also saying there There wasn't. wasn't. Okay. Other questions arose from Gary's supposed confession. He claimed that he made no incriminating admissions. Of course, in the earlier part of this podcast, I said that Gary said that he was there, but that somebody else did the work. Exactly. Yeah. He's saying, I made no incriminating admissions that this interrogation and 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 that this interrogation was taped. They said, no, we did not record this interrogation. So very convenient that you didn't tape it. He said, yes, they absolutely did. Oh, my God. So Detective Sellers continued to deny this, saying that the only record was made while he sat at his kitchen table at 4.30 a.m. on the night of the interrogation while he wrote Gary's confession from memory. However, in the Columbus file, Ertl found what looked like early versions of Gary's statement with tape recorder meter marks written in the margins. Ah, so it was being recorded. These Wait, versions, the, the, lawyer? the lawyer. Holy yeah. shit, good lawyer. These versions suggested that Gary hadn't admitted to being at the scenes of the crimes, not even as an accomplice as Melvin Crittenden committed the murders. Sellers testified that the meter marks did refer to a tape, but they weren't made while the police questioned Gary. Instead, they were from a recording he made of a meeting in his office. Sure, yeah, yeah. That sounds right, you Mm -hmm. piece of shit. And he said that he destroyed the tape soon after. So, Ertl was aware of the autopsy report that contained pictures of Janet Coffer's body. Bud Simon noted a deep bite mark on Janet's left breast from the killer. Simon lacked the funds to pay for an expert to compare these marks on Gary's teeth to the actual, you know, autopsy. Because, again, he had no money to, like, fund anything. He couldn't sure. get experts in, involved. So, um, when asked, funds were refused by Judge Followell. Ertl called on a forensic dentist, Thomas Davis, who he chose at random. He said he chose it at random. And Dr. David said that he wanted to speak with Ertl in person. So he left a message. Hey, this is what's going on. He's like, hey, can you come down here? I want to talk to you. This is the dentist. So Dr. David admitted that he had seen the case as he was the person they actually showed the bite cast to in the beginning. Ertl was stunned because he hadn't known that a bite cast even existed. Ah, so they're saying that they showed him and he's like, no, nobody ever showed me this. Um, well, Dr. David had seen the oh. cast. So Dr. David indicated that two months after Gary's arrest on July 6, 1984, Bill Smith and his assistant had come to see him. They showed him a solid dental mold, mold excuse me, that had been taken from Janet's body after it had been... Um, after it had been recently inflicted, they took a mold of the the imprints, which is so terrible because this actually happened to another human being. The lower teeth showed distinctive crowding, and Dr. David said that he instructed Bill Smith to get a dental impression from the suspect. Uh, you think? Right. I mean, that's obvious. Sure. Um, he said it would uh, either prove or disprove that Gary was the attacker. So despite the passing of nine years, Dr. David was still troubled. Smith had asked Dr. David whether even if Gary's teeth didn't match the cast, I would testify that I could not necessarily eliminate that individual as a suspect. I said I could not. Smith instead testified that he had not contacted Dr. David again because the bite only showed impressions of the upper teeth. Despite being highly relevant evidence, the bite mark evidence was not used during the initial trial. So, I mean, that to me, like you look at somebody's teeth, like, is this what they look like? Yeah. And he didn't get the information they were supposed to probably because it didn't support his case or whatever. So Ertl noted as a non-dentist, he's a lawyer, 
that um, Gary's teeth, instead of showing crowding, they were very, very clearly well-spaced and even. No crowding whatsoever. So clear that he wouldn't have made that bite. I am not a dentist. I saw the bite marks on the, the top teeth, and I could clearly look at a picture of this man online and say that those are not his teeth. Wow. Yes. Fascinating. So the only dental work that Gary had done since the stranglings occurred while he was in prison, and the work was done to his upper teeth. The dentist who treated him confirmed that, yes, this was accurate. The bite mark casting had been made by a dentist in Columbus named Dr. Carlos Sonny Galbraith. Month before the, months before the trial, Dr. David called Dr. Galbraith, who told him that he had the cast instead of the police keeping it in their guarded exhibit store, which is weird. You know, he, this de- this dentist is just holding it. Yeah, evidence typically mm-hmm. is held by police, not some random dude. In June of 1993, Ertl called Dr. Galbraith, who thought he had the cast at his home at that point. He said he sounded apologetic a few days later when he called back to let him know that the mold must have been either lost or destroyed. Ertl had tried to obtain semen swabs from the stranglings, though he was told that they had also been destroyed. Ertl felt that Gary's state habeas appeal was the strongest he had seen, though on November 13, 1995, Judge Kersey issued a 10-page decision denying the appeal. He gave no reason for rejecting the fresh evidence. So basically, they're just being denied. So Gary had only one opportunity left, a second habeas petition. At the time of the stranglings, DNA testing techniques had not been invented, though there was something called secretor typing. Have you ever heard of that? No. So basically, it's that four-fifths of the population are secretors, which means that you have chemical markers that are secreted in your saliva, semen, or any other bodily fluids that show your blood group. Oh. So the majority of people, four-fifths, are actually secretors. It's weird that not everybody is. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. So, um, for instance, group O secretors would be someone with type O blood. They're the DNA tech... Uh, testing techniques. They hadn't been invented, but again, we have this secretor thing to look at. So semen tests um, at the murder scene of Fern Jackson, Florence Scheibel, and Martha Thurman showed that the strangler was less common non-secretor. That's what was determined. Again, he would have only been in one-fifth of the population. That contained only minuscule traces of the group O marker. So some part is being shown, but it's it's ultimately determined non-secretor because of the very small amount that was shown. I'm going to go ahead and guess Carlton Gary is a secretor. So Gary's saliva had been obtained during his arrest and showed that he was an O secretor. But this is a big thing. Absolutely. You know? It's huge. I'm, that's why it's much bigger. It's not... Okay. Right. So during the trial itself, forensic serologist John C. Weigel insisted that despite the discrepancy, Gary couldn't be eliminated, arguing that it's possible that the killer had not really been a non-secretor, but could have just been a weak secretor. Tests done on Gary's saliva show that he was a very strong secretor, producing much higher concentrations of the chemical marker than the killer had. I'm sorry, and it wasn't Weigel, it's Weigel. Weigel testified that it's possible that his saliva was different from his semen, which had never been tested. He also indicated that it's possible that his levels had changed over the years. Periodically, if you would test someone over a given amount of time, you will see that the tighter concentrations can in fact fluctuate. Due to the lack of funding, again, his attorney couldn't challenge anything because he couldn't afford it. 
So journalist who I mentioned, David Rose, went to Dr. David Roberts, who is an um, he's an expert in Oxford, England. Um, He read the documents of the trial relating to the serology. Dr. Roberts was baffled by the reports and also found that they were incomplete. There was no evidence to back up the theory that Gary secreted much less in his semen versus his saliva because not only had his semen not been tested, even to just rule this, you know, fact out, but semen invariably contains higher concentrations of the marker chemicals on saliva. So you would just automatically assume that that's even going to be higher. So it just doesn't make sense. The literature also indicates that secretor status does not change over time, even though he said it could. That's not true. He suggested that Gary Seaman be tested to confirm that he is a strong secretor, just to say that that's not because he's like, oh, it could be that it's weaker. So in 2001, a semen sample and a strand of hair from Gary's head was obtained. Once received, the DNA from the hair root was matched to the semen. The semen was tested and it determined that the donor was an O secretor and that he was not a low level secretor, elaborating that it was inconsistent that someone secreting such high concentrations could ever be classified as a weak secretor. He wouldn't have been. So basically, um, there's no chance, no chance you would look at this guy as this. No. Okay. And they said that the concentration of the blood group marker in Gary's semen was more than 3,000 times higher than that of the stranglers. So it's super, super clear not possible. this is not the same guy. No. Not possible. So on June 29th, 2001, Judge Lawson denied the defense's request to test Gary Seaman and denied that the independently arranged test be considered. When journalist David Rose ended up speaking with Dr. Galbraith, who did the cast of the bite mark from Janet Coffer, he admitted that he was told by the DA, Doug Pullen, that he could not show the cast that he said was absolutely still in existence. So the cast wasn't destroyed. It still was it, it existed. He had given it to the Columbus coroner, Donald Kilgore, in 1993. On follow-up, the cast could not be located, but he remembered that the strangler's upper front teeth were rotated at a 20-degree or more angle out of alignment. Gary worked as a model and had completely straight teeth. Ah, man, that's crazy. So this was the one that I actually saw the bite model, and you could tell it's a 20-degree angle out of alignment. Well, now we know why they didn't want to actually get the right cast and everything, because it would clearly show he wasn't the one. So not only did the top teeth, or the bottom teeth not overcrowd like the cast showed, the top teeth were not angled. But I guess because of the um, dental work he did have done to his upper teeth, they couldn't have looked at that anyway, because potentially could have changed inadmissible yeah. yeah it's not the same but he worked as a model in his younger days before any of this happened like common sense can tell you that his teeth weren't jacked up they were not yeah by 2004 judge clayland was now columbus's federal judge also part of the family um and he felt that despite the serology and bite mark discrepancies he was not convinced that the jury would come to a different verdict anyway Gary filed an appeal in response to this, and during this time, the missing bite cast was located. In 2006, forensic dentist Dr. David again inspected the cast, determined that Carlton Gary was excluded beyond a reasonable doubt as the man who bit Janet Coffer. Excluded? What does that mean? Like, he was not the one? He was not the one who bit Janet Coffer. Beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning that no doubt about it. Well, pretty much no doubt about yes, it. Yes, beyond any kind of reasonable doubt. Yeah, he was, this is not. This is not the person that bit Janet Coffer. Oh, man. So this, in, there's so many things coming together now. Like, when I originally said it's usually a white serial killer or something, like, I don't even think Carlton Gary was there. Like you said, I never said I was at these places, right? Well, and that's like you read that as like fact online. Right. You're like, he confessed to have been at, at the 
uh, at the place. And then you're like, wait a second, did he? Right. This is absolutely nuts. So also in October of 2006, retired special agent with the GBI in the 70s came forward to say that during his investigation of the crime scene of the home of Ruth Schwab, who survived the strangler's attack, they found a footprint on an AC unit that the killer used to c- climb through her kitchen window. The shoe size was a nine and a half or a 10, which is four sizes smaller than that of Gary. Wow. So her description of her attacker was small and muscular. Gary is six foot three. <laughs> he is largely built. Like you would think this would have come out at some point, and it probably did. It probably was covered up. I'm baffled. Like when I was doing this research, I was baffled. <sighs> the poor guy. So we're talking that this is in the nineties, right? No, this is like back in the no, it well, happened. you mean where things were looking back up? Yeah, I mean no, we're talking of, in October of two thousand six, they're talking about the shoe size. So this guy's been in jail for like twenty years. Since 1980-something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Poor guy. So um, the shoe size looped back around to the murder of Nellie Farmer, which happened in Albany. Again, he was not convicted of any of that. But the killer in that case left a size nine on her bathroom mat. You could tell he stopped in the bathroom to wash his hands. And clear as day on the bath mat was a size nine shoe print, four sizes or so smaller than that of Gary's. Another question was a lack of photos of the prints that were left behind at the crime scene. Such photos are routine procedure. Even at like a minor burglary case, they would take a photo. Fingerprints from the crime scene of Gary's robbery in 1979 were compared with the strangler's prints and no match was found. In December of 2009, with four hours to spare on the day of Gary's planned execution, the Georgia Supreme Court stopped it and ordered for the Court of Columbus to consider the DNA evidence. Motions for a retrial were denied and Carlton Gary was executed. Are you fucking kidding me? On Thursday, March 15, 2018, via lethal injection, as family members of the victims watched, only feet away in an observation room. He made no final statements. He rejected the offer for prayer he refused his final meal and outside 18 protesters stood by so i just okay so we're talking that the pubic hairs did not match the fingerprints didn't match the shoe sizes didn't match the creator status of the semen did not match did anything match um anything at all ever i don't think so the the one thing we had was that he said he was there, but now he's saying he didn't say that. Now he's saying, I never made such confessions, and there's markers of a tape recorder that showed it was recorded. They said, no, we did not record his interrogation. So, so it's hearsay. It's he said, she said. This is like complete insanity. Like, this guy should not have been in jail at all. Has he ever done anything in his past? Um, lots of robberies, robberies, lots and lots of robberies. Okay. So they, yeah. that's probably why. But they then on. again, his DNA was said to have been tied to the lady who's 40 years old in New York, Syracuse. Right. Marion. That makes sense. So his DNA in 2007 ended up matching. Oh, it did. It did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's not a good guy. No. So that was in my mind. I'm like, well, clearly Carlton Gary is not a good guy. He had Jean Frost's watch. She had been attacked the day before. Why did you have her watch? Uh, like, okay. So, so a couple things. There's definitely some things that for sure he's done bad in his, his life. He was imprisoned many a times for robbery and such like that. But again, he was tied to 
uh, Marion's death. So really, it's probably likely that they didn't actually find the the socks. The stocking strangler. Stocking strangler. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would guess from this. Uh, in this, yeah, they found this guy and he did his thing. But you know, that that whatever. Whoever it is is got about a size nine to a ten shoe size, and is a weak secretor. <laughs> That's crazy. They did determine, though, from the guy who was at the crime scenes, the medical examiner, that it would have been a black person based on the pubic hairs that were left behind. That's Uh what he determined. I don't know. Okay. Well, that's interesting, too. Because, again, serial killer is usually white, not saying 100% of the time, but that's that's interesting. Wow. That took a twist somewhere in there that I didn't expect whatsoever. I thought it was another, like, open shot. Like, here we are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're like, wait a minute. Now now I see why they were so mad that, you know, he couldn't afford to get, you know, a lot of experts involved in the initial trial. Yeah, he couldn't. And then, um, you know, we said that the lady in Syracuse, Marion, she was the outlier because she was only 40. So, you know, if Gary was, like, definitely linked to her murder... That does not coincide with 80-something-year-olds' murders, you no. know? Right. Like, that's somebody... And again, like, Marion was found dead, and she was strangled. Like, his, the people who slept with him said he was not into that sort of thing. Doesn't fit the profile. So I... It is of my opinion that he was not the stocking strangler. No, definitely not. I would agree. That's... Uh, this is a case of racial whatever. I don't know about racial. But I don't know, because according to Dr. Kilgore, bl- the medical examiner, it was a black person that did this. Okay. So it was just somebody where the police were trying to get somebody and close the case, and they think they did, but they really didn't. Yeah. And I'm sorry I went on the tangent about the secretor, but... You it's know, unnecessary. it's a lot of science, but yeah. I mean, that's like black and white, like, and I know that's like t- a terrible pun to use in this case, but it's from him being 3,000 times higher of a secretor than the actual Such clear strangler. Evidence like, that that's, not... that's scientific. Right. Right. Like, that's not an opinion. That's insane. Well, man, I'm so sure. So, it's... I. I don't know. I don't know what to say. The the man was put to death. It's a lethal injection tied to these murders. Like we said, he got himself into a lot of bad things. He likely killed somebody. I believe, yes, that he did a lot of bad things. Do I believe that he was the stocking strangler? It is my opinion. No. I know I just said that, but I'm saying it again. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that was really interesting. Thank you for telling us about it. And I had to look up habeas corpus. So I I, And you know what? While we were in the kitchen doing something after I was doing research, I'm like, I should probably look up habeas and i still don't really know what it is and yeah so. those lawyer terms yeah. I'm, i don't think i'd be a good lawyer I, I comb through things when i'm interested but some of the words are just like just say it how it is yeah well sometimes it matters habeas. sometimes it doesn't matter that's okay so habeas bullshit <laughs> well good job Thank, thank you for you. bringing that to us. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening so much. We appreciate it. And if you want to hear more episodes, there's an easy way to do so. It's called becoming a Patreon or a patron via Patreon. So look in the show notes. You can go to Patreon, choose to be a $5, $10, or $25 contributor. And uh, if you're a $5 contributor, you get one bonus episode a month. If you're a $10 contributor, you get one every other week. So there's certain months where it's three in a mm-hmm. month. So check that out. And I want to say thank you to every one of our patrons, Colleen, Lily, Karen, Nadine, Allie, Michael, Kayla, Dominic, Brian, Shannon, Elizabeth, Mandy, Alana, Vivian, Trisha, Lauren, Megan, Jamie, Chastity, Elizabeth, Clara Ann, Emily, Kathy, Ava, Jovi, Eileen, Misty, Rochelle, Destiny, Ellie, Sherry, Melanie, Bettina, Rebecca, Gabrielle, Angela, Sabrina, Sandra, Taylor, 
Dana, Allison, Ashley, Mindy, and Sandy. That's a lot, and we appreciate every single one of you. Absolutely. And if we have any new patrons and you don't hear your name being read, that's because we're pre-recording this because we're going to meet up with some family next week. Yeah, if you're listening to this now, we recorded it two weeks ago. Yes. So we will mention you next time, and we thank you all, everyone, for being here, for listening, and we hope to hear or have you back next time. Bye.